If you would please take either your Bibles or your bulletins to open to the passage for today, Matthew, uh, beginning in the end of chapter 27, verse 62, and then we're going to read all of chapter 28, which gives us the account of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want us to see it with a little bit of its context. So we're going to start at the end of chapter 27, but this is a, a day in which we celebrate and commemorate really One of the things that we say occasionally here is that every Sunday is an opportunity for us to celebrate and commemorate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that is why we worship on Sundays, because Sunday is the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so today is a a special in that among all the days we commemorate the resurrection, today we especially commemorate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to read the account for us. One of the things that stands out to me is that it's very brief, considering this is essentially one of the great climaxes of the story of Scripture. It's really told fairly quickly, just factually, just very plainly. This is what happened, and this is the way that his disciples learned about what happened. So let me ask you, if you will, to please stand with me for the reading of God's Word today. This is Matthew, starting in chapter 27 and verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money 
and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks again for this, your word, which in your grace and your mercy you have given to us. We pray that you will be our teacher. Lord, that you, by the power of your Spirit, will guide the eyes and ears of our hearts to our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we might see him high and lifted up, exalted on his heavenly throne, reigning over all things. Lord, that we will now have great joy, that we might feel with the, the women, the fear filled with great joy that we serve a risen Savior, that we serve a Savior who died and behold, he lives forevermore that he is one whom death and the tomb and hell and the devil had no hold on him, for they could not keep him in the tomb. But he rose again. He has received all authority in heaven and on earth and given us this great and precious promise that surely he is with us always to the very end of the age. So, Father, as we gather now to hear your word in your presence, we ask that you will teach us, that you will guide us and direct us, build us up and encourage us in the faith, for it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This is what Easter is all about. Jesus raised from the dead on the third day. That death could not hold him. But our Savior and our Lord who was crucified, who was dead, and who was buried, has risen from the dead. That is why we celebrate that's what Easter is for. If your children are like my children, perhaps they've done any number of egg hunts over the last couple days and they've rejoiced in the candy and in the fun. That's fine, but that's not what Easter is. Easter is about Jesus. It's about our Lord being raised from the dead. That is the very heart of what it means to be a Christian, is to believe this. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is the great chapter about the resurrection of Jesus Christ that's in the New Testament. It tells us that the resurrection of Jesus is the very heart of the Christian faith. It is the linchpin that holds everything else in place. In fact, the Bible tells us if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then our faith is vain. Don't you love the honesty of the Bible in, in just telling us that? That, that this is the very act on which everything hangs. And if Jesus was not raised from the dead, as we celebrate on Easter, then our preaching is in vain. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. Paul pulls no punches in this chapter. He doesn't try to say that, okay, even if Christ was not raised from the dead, somehow all of this Christianity stuff is still worth it. He doesn't try to say that somehow if that's not true, you know, we'll still have lived a good life, right? We'll have been kind to people. That's worth something. Now he, he simply goes right for the jugular and says, if Christ was not raised, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, you're still in your sins, and of all people we are most to be pitied. But praise God, Christ was raised from the dead. He says this word vain, is it all in vain what we do? Do you ever struggle with that question, is it all in vain what we do? Is it all in vain the work we put into living the Christian life, the work that we put into raising families in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, of struggling to uh, be committed to a church body, of committing ourselves to following the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to say we live in a society, in a culture, in a world these days that would tell us it is in vain. That would almost laugh at us, right? They would scoff at us and say, what you're doing there, following Jesus, going to church, this is not where real life happens. This is not what truly matters. This is not what truly counts. In the world, they'd say, that's vain. That's fine if you want to be involved with it, but there's no meaning. There's no significance. There's no importance to that. That is not what you should spend your life on. Is it all vain? But Paul answers that question very clearly, and he says, well, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then that's true. But as it stands, Jesus died, and God raised him from the dead. He came out of the tomb on the third day, and therefore, he would say, everything changes. Everything in life has to be rethought around the central biblical confession that Jesus was raised from the dead. And if that is true, then nothing we do is in vain. Look, he says, if Christ hasn't been raised, you're still in your sins. But praise the Lord, Christ has been raised, and you are not in your sins. He says, if Christ hasn't been raised, then we're misrepresenting God. Of all people, we're most to be pitied. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, everything changes, everything has to be rethought. Everything about life, everything about what is important, about what matters in this world, about what is worth giving our lives to, about what is worth spending our time on, what is worth spending our money on, all of that needs to be rethought. It tells us, among other things, that, that being in worship on the Lord's Day with the body of Christ, gathering in the presence of our risen Savior and our covenant Lord Jesus. This is not in vain. This is one of the most significant things we can do to gather in his presence, empowered by the Spirit to worship in spirit and in truth, to be spiritually nurtured through the means of grace, the word, the prayer, the sacraments, to be built together into his temple, into his people, to be cleansed and purified by Christ our Savior who dwells with us, 
That, that if Christ has been raised from the dead, this then is truly one of the most significant and profound things we can do to gather as his body. If Christ has been raised from the dead, then being committed to a local church, committed to his body, is not in vain. The work that is done, the ministries that happen in the local church, no matter how insignificant these things might look to the world, Christ has been raised from the dead. If he has conquered the grave, then that turns all of our, our sources of meaning on their head. Because Christ would tell us there is no such thing as a cup of cold water offered in his name that is in vain. As, as insignificant as it looks to the world, Christ says he looks at it with great significance to say these ministries, as small as they may be, no act of love shown in the name of Christ is ever in vain. No act of reaching out to a member of the body of Christ to show love, to offer prayer, to help, will ever be in vain. In fact, the very end of 1 Corinthians 15 is one of my favorite verses. Verse 58, he says, Therefore, after a whole chapter about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There is no labor offered to the Lord in this world, whether ministry to fellow believers in the church, whether outreach to those who don't know Christ, or whether the vocations that God has called us to do in this world, if we work as though working for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, these things are not in vain. No matter how difficult, no act of self-sacrificial love towards another, that when we choose intentionally, to die to some part of ourselves in order that we might love someone else in the name of Christ, that we might serve them. Anytime we allow love to cover over a sin that was done against us and we're willing to, to swallow that pain rather than turn it back against them, these small decisions that are faithful decisions to Christ, these are not in vain. Although it might be that no one else will see them or appreciate them other than Christ. They are not in vain. Your labor for the Lord is not in vain. It is filled with great significance because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and if you believe that, then like the two women in Matthew 28, you too will be filled with fear and with great joy and grasping at the feet of Christ will worship him with gladness when he is raised from the the dead. Now, I want us to look at this passage in Matthew. What's interesting about this passage to me is I, I find three types of fear in this passage that are all caused by the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. It has different effects on different people, but everyone has some type of fear. There's one kind of fear that's like the Pharisees. They're afraid because they know the resurrection is true. And they know that Jesus is a threat to their way of life. There's that kind of fear. There's one kind of fear that's like the guards at the tomb, and it simply makes them turn into dead men with great irony. And the other kind is like the women. It says that when they found that Jesus had been raised from the dead, they were filled with fear and with great joy. 
And that's what I hope that we will find as we also encounter Jesus raised from the dead. But look at the first kind. I want us to look briefly at these three types of fear. There's Pharisaic fear. Pharisaic fear. The Pharisees, at the end of chapter 27, these are the Jewish leaders that have gone before Pilate and have warned him about this possibility that that Jesus has claimed he's going to rise from the dead on the third day, and they want to make sure that his disciples don't try to fake anything and get away with it. And see, their problem, it's not that they don't believe the words Jesus said. They do, and that's why they're so afraid. And so they go, and, and they warn him, and they want to get some guards there. But what we see with the Pharisees, this type of fear is a fear that is driven because they don't worship Jesus. They're worshiping Pilate. Right? That's what we see in this passage. Look at verse 62 of chapter 27. These are people who are, are presented to us as though they're worshiping Pilate. Look at this verse. It says, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation. Right Now, the day of preparation was Friday. That was the day when they were to prepare their sacrifices. So the next day is Saturday, a.k.a. it's the Sabbath day. It's the Sabbath day, and these are the Pharisees and the chief priests. These are the leaders and the teachers of the Jews. Jews, on on the Sabbath, what should they be doing? They should be gathering before the Lord for worship. And yet it says, on the Sabbath, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. And they said, sir, now that's an interesting word. That word there in the Greek is the word kuria. It's often translated as Lord. On the Sabbath, the chief priests and the Pharisees gather in the presence of of, uh, Pilate and they address him as Lord. Now, it says, sir, because we know that that was a word that could have the more formal sense of Lord or it could have a very informal sense of sir. And, And people would use that in everyday life to say, sir, thank you, sir, please, sir. But in the Gospel of Matthew, that word, that kuria, that Greek word is only used to describe Jesus, God the Father, or the character in one of the parables who is representing Jesus or God for the God the Father. So for Matthew to, to phrase it this way is he's doing this intentionally. Right? He could have easily told us that, that the Pharisees, they went and they asked for guards. He could have just given us the factual representation, but he's trying to paint a certain picture here. He wants us to see what's going on that that it's the Sabbath day, the day of worship, and the Pharisees and the chief priests, the teachers, the leaders of the Jews, go to Pilate and say, Lord, they address him this way. There's idolatry going on here, and you know what he's showing us? He's showing us that there's two types of people in the world, right? Those who worship Jesus and those who worship anything but Jesus. Because that's the truth about about people, about humans, is that humans are worshiping machines. We are made and designed to worship something. And if you can worship Christ, or you can worship something else, but what you don't have is a third option to not worship at all. It's been described as a a fire hose that's going full blast. You can choose to point it at the fire, or you can point it somewhere else, but it's going full blast. You can't turn it off. It's going to be doing something. And so it is with, with the human heart. That's why Calvin said human heart is an idol factory. It's it's a worshiping machine that is going to be worshiping either. You can point it at Christ and worship him as Savior and Lord, risen from the dead. 
Or it can go somewhere else and, and turn something else, anything else, into an idol and say, this is what I worship. This will be how I define myself. Where I choose to find life. Where I choose to find meaning. And that's what it is to worship something. To turn it into an idol. And we get a picture in this chapter of what happens when our heart latches on to something other than Christ and turns it into an idol. He doesn't just tell us that it's bad. Look at how he shows us what happens. Later in chapter 28, now after the resurrection, verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And they told them the story. They agreed all together as a group. Here's the story we're going to tell about this. Now, we can at least give them this much credit. They heard about the resurrection and they knew what it meant. That they're not trying to, to blow it off. They're not trying to doubt. They hear. They believe that it's true. They know what it means. But because they do not worship Christ, they worship something else, they're terribly, terribly afraid. And in their fear now, see, fear is a great motivator. And fear causes you to spend money on things you might not otherwise spend them on. And here, the Pharisees and the teachers are so afraid that the very foundation of their life has now been undercut. That they are, they're, they're going to pay off the soldiers. These are the teachers, these are the Pharisees. Certainly they're not in the habit of paying people off to lie for them under ordinary circumstances. But when what you worship has been attacked, it causes such fear that they are now going to pay them off and agree ahead of time what lie to tell. That's what happens when you have been giving something far more authority in your life than it ought to have, and then you, it's exposed. It's exposed as a lie, and your life is a sham. You squirm, and you lie to try to get out of it, and that's exactly what they're doing. They're doing here. Now, we have people who do the same thing today, don't we? That is, there are people who don't like to think about Jesus. Not because they have doubts, but because they don't have doubts. But be because they know deep down in their heart that what Jesus says is true. And they know deep down that if, in fact, he was raised from the dead, that that would change everything for their life. And they don't want it to be true. Because they have built a life on worshiping something else, and they know that the resurrection of Christ would be an attack on the foundation of their life. But here's what we see. The resurrection is not an attack. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to come into the light, to set those idols aside, to let them be buried and to worship a risen Savior. They're afraid. But they're afraid because they know it's true. They're at least one step closer. We also see the guards. There's Pharisaic fear. There's also the guards' fear. We don't know as much about the guards, so we can't say as much here. Except we know there's these guards who are assigned to guard the tomb. There's, there's at least more than one of them. We don't know how many there are. But they are assigned to make sure that nobody messes with it. Nobody comes. Nobody rolls this stone away. Right? They have one job. Make sure the stone does not roll away. However, an angel from heaven comes down and he rolls the stone away. 
and they are powerless to stop him. In fact, they become like dead men. Right? And this fear, we can say maybe this is not the result of any particular sin, at least there's not one we know of. It's a, we could say it's a general worldliness, just a general secularness. They're not acquainted with Christ. They don't know Jesus. And in the presence of a risen Jesus, they are afraid. In fact, it's very ironic, isn't it? That just hours before, perhaps, their Jesus was dead, the guards were alive, with one job to guard the tomb, and now Jesus is alive, and the guards have become like dead men. We even sang some of the words earlier in the service, and in our second song we sang, Vain the stone, the watch, the seal. The watches, the guards, they were the watch that was assigned to keep watch over it, and we sang the good news that that was a vain tactic to try to keep Jesus in the tomb. No stone, no watch, no seal could keep them from Jesus, keep Jesus from rising from the dead when he was ready. And so we have Pharisaic fear, we have guard fear, but now look at the women. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb on Sunday morning. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and he came and he rolled back the stone and he sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here. He is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead. Verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. These are the women who become the first human witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Met by an angel at the tomb who, who tells them what has happened, who gets them up to speed and invites them to see the place where Jesus was paid. Now we know, just as a side note on this passage, that this continues to be one of the best evidences that this is a true story. Because we know that the facts in the first century are that the testimony of women was not acceptable in a court. And so if you had the gospel writers who were just trying to make up a story and to make it believable, that they never would have chosen women to be the first witnesses to the resurrection. That would have been a terrible idea. So the fact that it is women who are the first witnesses to the resurrection tells us the only reason that's written here is because it's true. That must have been the way it had happened. And it is the women who were faithful. It is the women who were still the ones who were, who were pursuing Jesus, who were following him even after his death when the disciples had been afraid and when the disciples had scattered. There were the women who were faithful. And they go to the tomb. And for their faithfulness, they're rewarded with the first witness of the resurrected Lord to meet him. The first humans to worship him after he has risen from the dead. And they're described in that moment, in that experience as being filled with fear and with great joy. Have you ever felt that together? Fear and great joy at the same time. Now, we know that this is a different fear than what the guards felt or what the Pharisees were feeling 
because ordinary fear simply cannot exist alongside great joy. It's usually one or the other. If I'm riding in an airplane and the pilot says, you know, I hate, I hate to say this, but we've run out of gas. Please assume crash positions. I would be filled with fear. I would not have a great joy bubbling up inside me at that time. Not godly enough. Maybe you could say I'm about to meet Christ. Not there yet. That would be just pure fear. If I look down and my, my arm is covered in spiders, I admit, pure fear. No joy. No joy. I, I, I would hop up and, and dance like no one wants to see. But there's no joy. Ordinary fear and joy, they don't go together. This is something utterly unique, and, and I call it gospel fear, where the fear of the Lord comes together with such great joy, all in one emotion, all at the same time. And this is the fear of the Lord that the Bible commends to us. This is the fear of the Lord that Exodus will say, this will be with you to keep you from sinning. This is the fear that is the beginning of wisdom. This is the fear that we feel in the joyful and gracious presence of Christ. It's not fear like dread or, or terror, just being afraid of something, because that kind of fear doesn't exist with joy. Jerry Bridges describes gospel fear. <clears throat> he says it's, it's a combination of absolute reverence respect, and deep awe together with the confidence of knowing that you're deeply loved, fully secure, utterly delighted in. There's awe and there's respect and there's reverence and there's fear, but it's, it's paired at the same time with this deep and profound joy. Very complex, and yet we know the difference because Ordinary fear paralyzes people. Ordinary fear turns you into dead men. Ordinary fear makes you run for your life, lie to protect yourself, pay people off. Gospel fear gives you new life. Gospel fear helps you move out towards others in love. Gospel fear gives you a new joy in the presence of Christ. Ordinary fear fills you with dread and you call on mountains to fall on you in the presence of Christ. Gospel fear draws you towards Christ. Gospel fear draws you towards others in love. We know these women aren't, aren't just purely afraid of Jesus. If it was pure fear, they wouldn't have also be filled with joy at the same time. Just imagine what those women must have been feeling at that point. These were women who, who knew Jesus had been with Jesus, had followed Jesus. Perhaps they had heard him say that he is the Christ. And from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated in power, coming with the clouds of heaven. That the Son of Man will come in glory and sit on his glorious throne. I wonder if these women had heard him say, before Abraham was, I am. Had been witnessed to his miracles, feeding the multitudes, healing the sick, raising the dead, walking on water. It witnessed his teaching and heard him who taught as one who had authority. These were women who had eyes to see, who had ears to hear, and so there was this deep sense of awe and fear, but at the same time they had known Jesus as a tender friend who loved the loveless and who was a friend of the friendless, who said, let the little children come unto me. 
This was a man who hung dying on the cross and was still arranging, uh, taking care of arrangements for his mother to be taken care of. This was a Jesus who, who was a man of sorrows, who laid down his life for his friends, who loved and cared for others. And so, how do you feel when this is the one that you meet again? And, and there's fear and there's awe and there's love and there's joy. And they all come together. There's a scene in, in Pilgrim's Progress when Christian, at the very beginning of his journey, he, he's begun and he has this heavy pack that he's carrying. And the straps dig into his shoulders and it's painful. And yet it, it describes that as he approaches a hill called Gethsemane with a cross, that his burden falls away. And it rolls and it goes down the hill and it goes into the sepulcher, or the tomb. And here's what it says, as I, I saw in my dream that Christian came up with the cross and his burden loosed from off his shoulders and it fell from his back and it began to tumble and continued to until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher. And then Christian was glad and lightsome and he said with a merry heart, he has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood for a little while to look and to wonder. For it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and he looked again, even until the springs that were in his head sent the water down his cheeks. And now he stood looking and weeping. And he said, Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that was put to shame for me. We have this picture of Christian, and his burden falls off, and he's filled with joy. And he says he's glad, and he's lightsome. But he continues to look and to ponder, and to wonder, and it moves him through joy into weeping, and finally into worship, to think on this reality that this man of sorrows took his sins and went to the cross that he might be free. To grasp this reality that should, should my weight of sin really fall from my shoulders because of what Christ has done at the cross. It's not just a, a pure, it's not just a light joy or gladness, but it's a very heavy joy. It's a joy that, that's mixed with this fear. Jai Packer once said, he was opining about the reality of the punishment that is due to sins and how some people think it's unjust. And he said, if you have never come under the conviction of the weight of your sin against a holy God, then you're not yet qualified to give an opinion about the punishment that is due to sin. He said it's only when you truly understand in your own person the reality that you have sinned against the holy God that now you feel the weight of the profound joy of knowing that that same sin is forgiven. And it's only those who know Christ, who understand sin. See, and this is what we talked about with the kids in the communicants class. It's not enough to know sin as a, a theoretical, philosophical thing. But you have to know the weight of sin in your own life, that you have offended a holy God. And it's not enough to know Christ as, as a, a historical person, but to know he is a savior for you, and that you can believe in him and rest on him and on him alone for your salvation. And when you have done that, then joy 
then it, it will no longer be confusing after that to think that joy could be mixed with fear. And that will lead you to the place where with the women, when Christ comes to you and greets you, that you will be ready to fall at his feet and to worship, filled with fear and with great joy. How do we get to that place of worshiping our risen Savior like that? We do it by knowing Christ, crucified and risen, by seeing him, not just theoretically, but personally, knowing that he is a Savior for sinners like us. Embracing that to move us through the the happiness and the good news on to the pondering and the wondering, on to the weeping and the profound joy mixed with profound awe and fear at the same time. I want to take up the cause of these last few verses. This is the Great Commission, where Jesus commissions his disciples to proclaim this to all the earth, and yet, I want to make, do a little twist, rather than commissioning us all to go out and proclaim it, let me just proclaim it to you. Believers in Christ, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he is certainly with us to the very end of the age. Therefore, let us continue to pursue our discipleship, learning all that he has said, obeying all that he has commanded, and enjoying his presence with us, even to the very end of the age. Amen. Let's pray.